City Limits. Brought to us by the People's Committee for Melbourne every Wednesday at 9am. City Limits is Melbourne's only hour devoted to our urban environment. To transport and planning and housing issues. To privatisations and our utility services. To building and or maintaining a sense of community. 855 on the AM band, if we can hear it through the noise and find it through the smog. City, City Limits. Okay, City Limits, it's the uh, fourth Wednesday of the month and today we're going to talk to uh, um, Julia Stockard, whom we spoke to a few weeks ago, which he's one of the protesters in the Save Western Port group which are, who are fighting the proposed AGL floating liquefied natural gas import processing plant at Crib Point in Western Port and uh, this week or last week the local government down there, the local council, rejected the proposal but of course it's still got to get, it's still got the state government and the federal government who can intervene so it's not a total victory but it certainly shows that the council recognises the massive local opposition to it down there and that's what really should be should be taken into account. We're also going to talk to Professor Paddy Moriarty from Monash in the second half because he'll also talk about the, the move that you know somehow liquefied natural gas, somehow gas generally is an alternative to coal when in fact so many people tell us and I think we, we're quite aware that it uh, it is no real alternative even in terms of the pollution it creates, including methane. So Paddy's going to talk to us a bit about that. Uh, so that's the program today, and I'm Kevin Healy. I didn't mention that. Karina's there. Karina, congratulations, by the way. You just stepped in for me when I wasn't well last week and um, did a wonderful job, so well done. Oh, thank you. I have the, I have the benefit of being able to edit everything afterwards. <laughs> Whatever your editing did, it came across very well indeed. <laughs> and Monday today, when we're actually pre-recording, is your birthday, so happy birthday as well today. So. Oh, thank you for saying it. Now I get to have two birthdays. I can listen back on Oh, Wednesday. good, that's right, because... Because, yeah, we, we go to wear Wednesday. But, oh, and the only thing you didn't do last week and I was highly critical of was you didn't do this. Hang on a tick. Uh, there was no pouring of the tea ceremony, which was a bit disappointing, <laughs> I've got to admit. But there you are. Okay, I'll have a sip of it now. Hang on a tick. Mmm, very nice. It's, uh, for those who are always interested in this, it's, it's a Vietnamese <laughs> green tea today. Look, just a, an item to kick off. Melbourne Day is coming up. So um, I think it's the end of the month. It's the 30th, I think, but whatever date it is, August 30. And there's been, it can't be celebrated this year because of uh, coronavirus, but there'll still be a junior Lord Mayor thing, etc. But there has been a bit of opposition to it. Surprise, surprise. The Melbourne Day Committee chairman is a bloke called Campbell Walker, whose father was Ron Walker, who was one of the corporate cowboys on the committee for Melbourne. He also brought the Grand Prix to Melbourne <laughs> and, and sold out Albert Park. Ron, of course, died earlier this year or late last year. I can't recall, maybe about a year ago. Uh, but he was a major, major figure in the, in the corporate world. And his son's quite upset. He says, in the very short time of 185 years, we've become a very recognisable city around the world. Melbourne Day is more than just John Batman and John Pascoe Faulkner arriving in 1835. It's everything that it's become since then. And if we're allowed, we'd like to celebrate Aboriginal life before the arrival, but that just hasn't been encouraged. And he's most upset the lack of engagement from Aboriginal groups. And you think, well, <laughs> what would they want to celebrate? Uh, anyway, he's absolutely frustrated, he says, because it's my job as chairman to run a successful event. 
But even the city of Melbourne stopped funding it a few years ago, and um, I think he's running it on his own. But anyway, the, the Melbourne Day is coming up, and uh, he's, he's stunned that the Indigenous community somehow doesn't want to be involved. Goodness Jeez, me, Kevin. yes. I've never even heard of the Melbourne Festival. I don't know if this is a common thing. It's weird to think about. What do you do? Like do little treasure hunts for John Batman's syphilis-ridden nose or something? Yeah, or... You know, you can celebrate the modern <laughs> the modern day arrival with James Packer across there with his casino, of course. You can oh, yeah. celebrate all the punters who run out at four in the morning and dive into the Yarra. Oof. Melbourne Day, no. It's apparently it's when they come up the Yarra and claimed it and uh, again Terra Nullius claim. There was a show about Captain Cook actually on the NITV station last week, which is quite interesting also about Cook's arrival and uh, from an indigenous viewpoint. It was quite an interesting show. Um, another item this week uh, of, of note is that more than 150 complaints have been received by the state ombudsman about the lockdown at the North Melbourne High Rise block, which is interesting. And Deborah Glass, who's the ombudsman, said some of the submissions to the inquiry were very concerned and called for anyone with a complaint to file by August 28. It is important that we document and understand what happened and learn lessons from what occurred so that in the future the human rights of public housing tenants are recognised as much as everyone else's. Uh, she originally launched her inquiry after the office was contacted by 50 residents prompting her to seek inputs from residents, Department of Health and Human Services, the Emergency Management Team, Victorian Equal Opportunity and Human Rights Commission, Community Legal Centres, Community Groups and the Victorian Multicultural Community and she'll continue to investigate why and how the lockdown happened, the impact on residents and whether it was in line with the Charter of Human Rights and Responsibilities Act and she's going to report to the Victorian Parliament. So that's a pretty important development, I think. Yeah, it is. It sounds like a lot of people reached out as well. Yeah, well, heaps of them, obviously, yeah. So, you know, there's obviously a lot of people very upset there about, uh, about what happened. And uh, let's hope she can come up with a report that uh, that fingers a lot of that cause, a lot of the problem. Yeah, it would be good. Yeah, Clive Palmer's been running ads all over the place, pushing another one of his developments in Western Australia. He's currently trying to sue the Western Australian government over what he claims uh, they changed the rules for a mine that was approved by the previous Liberal government, in fact, going way back. And he's left it idle for some time, but now he wants to sue them for millions and millions of dollars. They've brought in a law that tries to stop him doing that, and I'll end up in the high court because he's a most litigious person. In fact, uh, not only is he taking them to the high court for that, he's also taking them to court over their border closure, which he says is illegal. And now he's also suing the Premier for defamation over something he said about all these cases. So it just goes on and on. But it's interesting because if he loses at the High Court, he's saying he'll therefore take Australian federal government to a free trade hearing, one of these hearings that are based on these free trade agreements we're making, where companies have the right to take governments to court. Because the company, although he's in Western Australia and he's an Australian, the company he's involved with in this arbitration or in this court case is based in Singapore. It's his company called Mineralogy, but it's Mineralogy International Singapore registered. And so it, because Singapore and Australia have a free trade agreement, he's saying he could take Australian government to a, a hearing in which the government would be charged with changing the, the terms of an agreement. Those things we've always opposed in free trade agreements. And here's an Australian using it against the Australian government if he happens to lose the other one in the High Court that the Western Australian Act is uh, is illegal. So 
Clive's just going on and on as usual. Well, in some ways, we're pretty lucky that he's just such a ludicrous and newsworthy kind of figure, isn't it? Because a lot of this stuff happens behind closed doors. And, and if he does end up taking the feds to this free trade hearing, then it's I guess it's publicity for what's happening in this weird way, right? Well, I, I suppose it is, and it might, yeah, I suppose it might expose those sort of agreements too that, mm. uh, that our government continues to, to sign up to. The American president, uh, Goodyear Company, has decided that it's banning its staff from wearing political slogans of any sort and for any party, but Donald being Donald has taken it personally and said they've banned people wearing his Make America Great Again hats. And so he's urged consumers to boycott Goodyear tyres. And he says, don't buy Goodyear tyres. They announced a ban on mega hats. Let's make America great. Get better tyres for far less. <laughs> and so he just goes on and on, doesn't he? He said, I, I would be very much in favour of people who don't want to buy there. Anyway, uh, Biden then slammed it as being a, a petty political grievance and saying Trump cares little about Goodyear workers, but it's just another typical little Trump performance, just as one of his senior advisors, of course, Steve Bannon, was arrested for uh, knocking off money from a so-called fundraiser to build a Mexican wall. So it's all happening over there at the moment. I can't imagine they'd be doing very well anyway, Kevin, because it's not been a very good year, has it? <laughs> No, it certainly hasn't. And of course, his mate Louis DeJoy, who he put in to run the post office, the postmaster general now, Louis, of course, is cutting back. So they're trying to to sabotage the postal voting for the election. But it, what, what hasn't come out, I don't think, in our local media, but it's certainly come out on um, shows like Democracy Now! On, on this station from America, that DeJoy himself owns millions of dollars of shares in rival companies to the post office. So you've got the postmaster general running the public service who has millions of dollars of shares in rival companies. And there's been a long-term push by the Koch brothers, who are the big supporters of republicanism and extreme right-wing thinking in America. They have been pushing for years to have the post office privatised altogether. And I think what we're seeing at the moment is the joy playing that role both to privatise it for that interest, plus, of course, his other interests in rival companies. So it's just interesting if he has those interests in other companies. That's just another one I wanted to raise. And just another report last week that we are think workers needed to know this, Bill, needed to be told, but wage growth has slumped to its lowest rate in 23 years in Australia. In the private sector, it slowed to just 0.1%. So, um, as usual, workers are, are copying it. And I, I must admit, I never thought, because I, I come from Irish stock myself, I mean, my grandparents or great-grandparents, I suspect, came here in the, in the potato famine. And I always enjoy the Irish accent, except I've realised now, whenever I hear Alan Joyce, the head of Qantas, speak, it absolutely rankles me, that voice, because you know all he's doing is asking for more government help for a company that was privatised because the private sector would be more efficient and more government help for him and his shareholders and usually further crushing the uh, the workers in the company at the same time. So I just wanted to mention that, that uh, he's putting me off at least one Irish accent anyway. <laughs> oh, what a shame. Yeah. Now, we've mentioned several times recently, we've talked a lot about the problem at AMP and appointing a bloke who was a sexual harasser and who they settled a half million claim. 
Uh, last week, the, the woman involved, in fact, came out and told her story, a woman called Julia Slakowski. She was, she's an American who was working in America at the time. He was in London. In a company report on it, it looked at individual situations and said they weren't too serious. Well, what, I don't know was anything that can't be serious in terms of sexual harassment anyway. But if you put it all together, it's a quite horrific story and clearly a case of quite extreme sexual harassment against this woman who who resigned and the woman whom he beat for the job also resigned and went to another company. I think I mentioned that a couple of weeks ago. But I raised this this week because Pahari himself has set up an inclusion and diversity council in the company to show that they really are inclusive and you know and diverse. But he's appointed himself as head of it. And I thought, well, maybe he's the best choice because he certainly knows a hell of a lot about sexual harassment. But um, it, it's, it's outlandish that he's not only set up, he's set up this Inclusion and Diversity Council, obviously, to show you how they're really genuine, and then puts himself in charge of it. But increasingly, investors are uh, coming out and saying that, really, he simply has to go because uh, his position is, is incompatible with... Uh, all the furor that's been caused, and he can never uh, assume a position where he's going to be respected. So hopefully at some stage soon he'll just have to pull out because uh, it, is, it is reaching that stage. So, uh, yeah. It was starting to affect their business now, God forbid. Absolutely. He was put there because they said, you know, their reason was he makes a lot of money for the company, but uh, I think he won't be making a lot of money for the company if this continues. And uh, as I say, a hell of a lot of investors, including some superannuation funds, are saying that really he just needs to go because clearly it's just not going to work. And let's hope they're right. I think they are. We'll probably have Julia Stockett coming in shortly, won't we? But um, mm. another item of some interest, since the destruction of the Dukan Gorge Caves, by Rio Tinto, 46,000 years of indigenous history, the Western Australian government has, has set up a, a review into the Aboriginal Heritage Act, and they want to bring in legislation that gives indigenous groups rights of appeal that don't exist under the current laws. So that under the current laws, they had no right to object when they planted the dynamite or whatever, the explosives, and blew it up. But I mentioned a couple of weeks ago that Rio itself has put in a submission which says that they shouldn't overreact to what they've done. In other words, they shouldn't change the law so that they can't do it again. I think that's what they were really saying. We don't want them to uh, have a knee-jerk reaction which will impose more penalties and difficulties on mining companies. But also... Also, our old mate, uh, Gina Reinhardt, who has, of course, iron ore interests over there through the Roy Hill Company, she also says that the governments should not change the law too much. She, she warned the, the state government not to interfere with existing land use agreements between miners and traditional owners in replacing the state's heritage laws. And she also told the federal government that it should not change any federal legislation following the Ducan Gorge explosion. She says she's very happy with the agreement she's got with Aboriginal people, etc. And she argues that if you give the Aboriginal people too many rights in this situation, they could misuse the process to delay important projects. So poor old Gina's a bit upset about that. So. Important projects. Oh, dear. Yeah. 
so unsure that you're you know bleeding for poor for poor Gina. Well, I raise this again this week because the best that the Indigenous groups have received from Rio has been an apology and the company saying, we're really sorry, but we had to make a choice between blowing it up or getting it really high-grade iron ore from which we could make a fortune. And so that became a no-brainer, really. Uh, but they have apologised you know, quite sincerely in, the, in an area where there's lots of crocodiles. They've shed tears, but they don't want anything changed. And the same company that at this stage has given them no more than an apology, a couple of years ago, a mob called Monodelphus, which is a company that services mining companies, was servicing one of the Rio Tinto mines in the same area. It was a Cape Lambert, and in the course of it, it created a flyer which held up for some time the production at that particular mine. But instead of simply accepting an apology from Monodelphus at the moment, Rio is suing them for just on half a million dollars, which I find interesting because the same company that damages and totally destroys 46,000 years of history thinks it can get away with just an apology at the same time as if someone damages its property half a million dollars and I think some sort of hypocrisy award should go to them, I would feel... Um, Karina and uh, mm. absolute sheer hypocrisy. That's it. I think we're going to have to go to a short break now, Kevin. We are indeed. And, as much um, as I'd love to chat with you all morning. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I'm sure you would. I mean, you must love it. <laughs> okay, look, we'll take a break from City Limits, come back, and we're going to talk to Julia Stockett about the, uh, the latest developments at the AGL proposal at Crib Point. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, Melbourne's Voice of Dissent. 3CR Community Radio, 855 on the AM dial, streaming live at 3cr.org.au or on 3CR Digital in Melbourne. Well, brothers and sisters, what a show of strength we've got here today. Local issues. So I'm here at the school, kids strike for climate action. Live coverage. Join the, the spirit of this gathering here today at IMARC. Your voices. So give us a bit of a lowdown about what's happening. There's about 200, 250 people here at the moment. Community struggles. We're now in front of the uh, Tundaminuaya Mōbohina Monument. I'd like to thank Community Radio 3CR, who for the last decade has been broadcasting here. Feed Radical Radio, your membership is vital. A few hundred people about to pass us right now. Lots of young people standing up for their future. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377. If you're wrestling with feelings of anxiety, worry and depression or finding the current social isolation measures hard to deal with, we would like to encourage you to call Wellways Helpline. Wellways Helpline is a volunteer support and referral service that provides information to people experiencing mental health issues or other disabilities, as well as their family, friends and carers. We're here to talk if you are seeking information about mental health or mental health services or just need someone to talk to. As a peer-based service, everyone working at Wellways Helpline has a lived experience of mental health issues or disability. Wellways Helpline is a national service and operates Monday to Friday, 
9am to 9pm, excluding public holidays. If you feel it would be helpful to talk to someone about these issues during this difficult period, please call Wellways Helpline on 1300 111 That's 1300 111 Wellways supports 3CR. Okay, back on City Limits and um, on the line we've got Julia Stockard who's one of the members of Save Western Port. We interviewed Julia a few weeks ago when the submissions were called for the environment process into the proposed Crib Point floating liquefied natural gas plant by AGL with massive local opposition. We've got Julia back this week because last week the local council knocked back the proposal and rejected it, obviously recognising the massive opposition locally to it. But of course, that isn't the end of the story because there's still the state government and federal government to get around. But uh, Julia, I suppose it's a, at least a start and it shows the local government down there recognises the sort of opposition that uh, that exists. Yes, we were really happy to uh, to hear that the council voted unanimously to both oppose the project and the EES, the Environmental Effects Statement. So that was a really good outcome last week and it, it actually got some good media coverage in the Australian and the Age, which has been a bit hard to get some traction because basically this year there's only really one story and uh, that's COVID. And so, yeah, it was really good to, to get that in the news and to get the support of our local Shire Council. Yeah, and I, I guess locally you'd argue that uh, while COVID is incredibly damaging, this will be equally as damaging to the environment of Western Port and the, and the surrounding areas. Yeah, definitely. And it also it brings up a lot of issues about what sort of world we're going to have post-COVID because one thing that's really clear is that in these times of great stress and upheaval, People are really relying on the natural world and the solace they get from the non-built environment to help them with their mental health, their well-being, and those are the things that are going to endure and that we really need to care for. And that's really something that's become very, very clear as part of this project and the, and the community opposition. It's really sort of galvanised people's appreciation of community and of country, definitely. Mm. And just to remind people, could you just give us a quick rundown of what is proposed by AGL for Crib Point? Yeah, well, AGL are Australia's biggest carbon polluter. They've done some good things with um, renewables, but for some reason, well, that's, I think it's because they've got a lot of pressure to close down the Dell and, and the coal-fired power stations. So they're really looking to gas. They say that we're going to have a gas shortage now. A lot of analysts say that that's not true and that AGL and companies like that have exaggerated gas shortages to try and get approvals for unpopular projects like this. So the idea is that they want to import gas from overseas, which is really strange because Australia is the biggest producer of natural gas in the world. We export so much and it's very lucrative industry. So Daniel Andrews last year said that Victoria produces twice as much gas as we use, but it's all sold in a lot of overseas contracts and Australia is the only gas producing country in the world that does not have a reserve to keep enough of the resource for Australians that so energy companies are allowed to sell as much as they want overseas so AGL have uh, said that there's going to be a gas shortage and we don't really think that that's uh, the case actually because Australia produces so much gas so the idea is that they want to import gas from overseas that could be fracked gas 
it could actually have come from Bass Strait or from Australian gas fields, been sold overseas and then re-imported back into Australia. AGL themselves admit that the gas that they would be bringing back into Australia, by the time it's been regasified and processed, it could be 20 to 30% more carbon intensive than conventionally sourced gas. So what they want to do is to permanently more a floating regasification and storage unit, FSRU, at the Crib Point Jetty, which is at our local beach. So this is in Western Port Bay, which is a UNESCO Biosphere Reserve. It's a Ramsar wetland and it's um, of great significance to migratory birds and, and it's a really significant ecological community. So we think the choice of location is unsound. It's not a good uh, location. And we question the project. We question whether there is actually a need for it. When they first announced the project, AGL said that this was to provide cheaper gas for Victorian families. And, you know, gradually through the planning process, they then said it wouldn't be cheaper gas. And then it sort of emerged later that AGL wanted to use gas in gas-fired power stations in New South Wales and South Australia. So... The idea that it's for an urgent shortage in Victoria, we question that. Well, it's also questionable when you consider that there'll be ships going in one direction with Australian gas heading off to Asia or wherever, uh, passing ships coming back to, uh, to go to Crib Point. I mean, it just seems ludicrous. It really is a sign of a very, very broken energy system, energy market, lack of regulation on the part of the government and... Uh, a lot of uncertainty in the market. It's really hard to get your head around the gas market and the energy market generally. There's spot price, there's international price, there's local price. The things are changing all the time and it's very, very lucrative. And I think companies like AGL, I think they are really looking to, because, I mean, we all know that the fossil fuels, whether we phase them out before we are really in a, in a very critical you know, difficult place to the climate, or whether they run out, they're going to run out. We're going to have to look at alternatives. Why burn and dig up every last bit of fossil fuel when we know the health risks and the risks to climate? So, and that, that there are so many alternatives available. The thing that concerns us too is that if AGL get the approval for this project, it will really lock us into gas for the next. 20 years they're proposing to park this 300 meter ship which is really twice the size of the mcg ground 17 stories high it would be visible from french island from phillip island you know the the whole location is just is just ludicrous but the lifespan of the project what they project it would really lock us into gas and really put off the, the inevitable divestment from fossil fuels that the community is ready for, that Australians are well informed about and that they really are expecting to see some leadership on. And you mentioned last time also that they'll be taking water out of, out of Western Port and then putting it back after they've, they've used it and that, that in itself seems like a, a major environmental concern. Yeah, there's many, many environmental concerns to do with the proposal. There's no um, FSIU ever been in Australia before and the ones that we've researched around the world, they're usually in developing countries that don't have strong environmental regulation. 
Uh, it's really a gas factory. It's the sort of thing that a company like AGL would never get the approval for close to a residential community or on a beach. Um, the fact that it's floating somehow, that enables them to get around the kind of planning processes and the regulatory processes that would restrict that sort of facility in that kind of place. Uh, for example, an LNG processing plant is a major hazard facility. That's just the way it's classified around the world. But if it's on a ship, somehow it's exempt from that status. So then it's within the proposed location here is within a kilometre or two of a primary school. It's within a kilometre or two of a Navy base at Cerberus, which they haven't discussed that at all. And we know that that's a major risk. But apart from the, uh, the risk of explosion, freak weather event, you know, software failure, human error, bushfire, and a big bushfire went through there just two years ago through that whole foreshore area, as well as all the risk to life and property, there, there are a lot of environmental concerns. And the one that you mentioned is the one that really uh, struck home for a lot of people when they heard about it because the proposed FSRU would could service up to 70 LNG tankers a year. Now, in the environmental effects statement, they're saying a maximum of 40. But these ships are bigger than anything that comes into Western Port currently. They're enormous. They're the size of the Ruby Princess cruise ship. So that's an enormous ship that's a lot bigger than anything that we see in Western Port currently. But these uh, LNG tankers come in and their whole cargo is frozen. So the gas is transported at minus 160 degrees and to thaw that frozen gas there are a couple of ways they can do that they can use some of the cargo some of the gas to burn and heat up the frozen gas but that causes emissions and of course it costs them a lot of money to burn the cargo so they would much rather use the second option which is the what they call the open loop system where they use the ambient temperature of seawater to thaw the frozen gas cargo. So every time an LNG tanker comes in, the whole mass of that frozen cargo would be transferred into the bay. Essentially, they've got water cycling through a heat exchange. It would be chlorinated. It would be dumped as effluent back into the bay at the rate of 450 million litres. That's half a billion litres of seawater every day it operates and it's chlorinated and it's seven degrees colder and they say that's not going to have any impact. It'll all be fine. They don't anticipate any problems for the, for the fish, for the squid, for the dolphins, for the humpback whales that visit, for the what they call benthic flora and fauna, which is the microorganisms that live in the ocean, which are the basis of the food chain. And we disagree with that. We just, we don't agree that, that it wouldn't have a, a very serious cumulative impact. So the environmental effects statement has just been released last month. We uh, lobbied to get the whole project assessed, you know, at the highest level of environmental review that Victoria has. But we've been very disappointed with the quality of that document. There's a lot to it. But the advice that we've got, and we've had a lot of people looking at it, from whether it's marine impacts, freshwater impacts, soil contamination, risk fire safety, the pipeline, because this would also need a 60-kilometre pipeline to be built through wetlands and private holdings up to Pakenham to get the gas to the grid. 
So everyone that has looked at the EES reports have found glaring emissions, a lot of discrepancies, plain errors, just factual errors, really ineffective modelling. Their modelling doesn't take in a large enough area or they talk about how they're going to be keeping an eye on things so they're going to be doing observations. But those things are not mitigation strategies. You, you know, watching something to see whether it happens or not is not a mitigation strategy at all. So the impacts on the wildlife, the endangered species that live in the region and all around the bay, the ecological values of the area would be really seriously at risk. Mm. And as we know from countless previous examples, AGL don't have any kind of track record for safety, even baseline ecological management. There have been multiple examples in the past of this. Yeah, they, they were just fined again in the last few weeks. So over the last decade or so, they've racked up about $7.5 million of fines. Oof. And that's for environmental mismanagement, leaks, spills, mm. diesel spills, sulfuric acid spills, deceptive and misleading conduct, and for just not taking care of the basic procedures of running a business, like, you know, reporting and those kinds of things. So, yeah, we've got no confidence in them. And actually, in the EES, the Environmental Effects Statement, they acknowledge it openly, actually. They say, we don't expect you to trust us. We have had problems in the past. So they're pretty aware of it. They know that it's a big, big spot for them. They're saying, you know, that they want, they want to be held to account. But, you know, the way that they have managed their community consultation has been really... Uh, really dismissive. Uh, they've just done the bare minimum of what's required of them to get what they call social licence to operate, which is, you know, basically community approval. And I think across the Mornington Peninsula, Phillip Island, West Coast, regionally, there is no social licence existing for this project. The more people find out about the details of the project, the more they oppose it. They're like, what? They, they want to import gas and then it's like, they what? They want to dump polluted seawater. It's just like one thing after the other, after the other. They didn't release a quantitative risk analysis. They haven't been open about, you know, the different concerns. They haven't answered people's concerns. They've just basically said they don't anticipate any harm and we don't think that's good enough. Mm. We're talking to Julia Stockard from the Save Western Port Group. Julia, what were the reasons the council gave for knocking it back last week? They said that it was a weak analysis. Now, this is talking about the environmental effects statement that AGL and their experts have worked two years to prepare. They said it's a weak analysis and it gives us no confidence that the environmental impacts of this project can be acceptably managed. And they also said that Mornington Peninsula has committed to zero emissions by 2040 with clear stage targets along the way. If the state government supports this project, it will be displaying a lack of genuine commitment to be truly visionary and take real action in transforming our energy sector and protecting the future of our nation and the world, which is a pretty powerful statement. That was our Mayor, Sam Hearn, because last year, um, Mornington Peninsula Shire Council declared, like a lot of Shire Councils have done, a climate emergency and have got some ambitious plans to become carbon neutral within a you know, close time frame planning that. Yeah. Are you getting a feel for where the state government is on this or not? 
it's really uh, it's really difficult to tell that um initially when it was first announced um the environment minister lily d'ambrosio said this would be a game changer it would provide energy security for victoria it would bring jobs to the area and it would take advantage of existing infrastructure i don't know what she was thinking about that because there is no existing infrastructure here if you have to build a 50 kilometer pipeline to get the gas to the grid that is not existing infrastructure if you have to spend 20 million dollars to bring a mothballed jetty up to the spec of an fsiu to be moored there that is not existing infrastructure and the idea that there would be jobs for people here well we know that the mornington peninsula and phillip island and that the region has relies on tourism well, that's not happening for us this year for anyone actually but but for the long term, that is the future of this area. And within an hour of Melbourne, with Melbourne being the fastest growing city in Australia, an intact and pristine wetland within an hour of Melbourne is a resource, an asset that is just so precious that the recreational and life, lifestyle and uh, health benefits of that are only going to improve. So the idea that you would compromise that or put that at risk for the potential gain of 40 jobs which ASIO has conceded would be the amount of jobs that would be created by this project and yet a lot of those jobs would need to be filled by LNG workers that have been trained elsewhere because as I said there's been never been an FSIU in Australia before so the project doesn't stack up so it's concerning. We, we had asked the um, Minister Wynne, the Minister for Planning, has a lot of discretion in this. So the, the proponents, AGL and the pipeline company, APA, they are the ones responsible for doing the environmental effects statement. So a lot of people think that that would be a governmental review, that the government would look into the project and assess it. But actually it's strange that the proponent does that, and the proponent is advised along the way by DELP, which is a Department of uh, Environment, Land, Water and Planning. So they advise and hold their hand along the way and tell them what's acceptable, what isn't, how to put together the reports and, and uh, whether it will be accepted or not. Once it's accepted, then it goes to exhibition, and that's the stage that we're in now, where the public has a period where they can uh, review the document and then make submissions on it. So that's what we've been doing for the last few weeks, working madly, and I mean feverishly, reading 11,000 pages of technical reports that are really dense and getting advice on them on a range of issues from the gas market to the project rationale to the environmental marine, you know, endangered species, the health and safety, the social impacts, the Aboriginal cultural heritage, the historical cultural heritage, safety, and there's just so many different um, aspects to this, and the pipeline, the whole pipeline. So we've been writing submissions on that, and as I said, it's been universally acknowledged that it's it's a pretty flimsy 11,000 pages. There's a lot to it, but it's, um, yeah... So I'll just say one of the things that we discovered was that the, the foreshore reserve at Crib Point there, AGL actually applied to have it closed to the public, which, which is just so shocking to people because that's, that's our beach. They want to close it down. They want to take control of it. It's really 
It's outrageous, isn't it? We've argued in this program for years you've raised one of the most serious problems with all environment statements, that it's the proponent who, uh, who runs it, as you say, and we've argued that it should be run by an independent body. And in fact, the state should also provide funding for community groups like yours to be able to match the proponent in terms of uh, presenting evidence to these, these things as well. It is a real anomaly that they run it and they control it. Okay, look, we'll take a quick break from uh, City Limits, talking to Julia Stockard from, say, Westernport, and when we come back, we're going to have Professor Paddy Moriarty on the line from Monash. Housing for the Aged Action Group has gone digital to help stop the spread of the coronavirus, but we're still here. If you're over 50 years old and having problems with your housing, we can help. If you're having trouble paying the rent, problems with your retirement village manager, or concerned about your caravan park, give us a call on 1300 765 178. We can also help connect you with aged care services and emergency relief if you need it. Stay safe, everyone. Yarra Bicycle Users Group Radio, 10am every Monday morning on Community Radio 3CR. Also live streaming on the web and weekly podcasts at 3cr.org.au. So listen in for the very latest bicycle stories, news and views from Melbourne and around the cycling universe. Listen in. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855am on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. Okay, back on City Limits, we've been talking to Julia Stockett from Save Western Port about the proposal at Crib Point to, to uh, actually import gas and then refine it there. But, Paddy, I wanted to ask you, because gas is promoted by many proponents of it, of it, of course, as being a major alternative to coal because it's less polluting, but, but indeed it's not less polluting, is it? Well, it is. Um, given that um, natural gas... CH4 contains less carbon. In other words, it's got one carbon molecule for hydrogen. So really, um, you're burning hydrogen as well as carbon. Coal is roughly one-to-one ratio. So for, for a given amount of energy, natural gas produces much less carbon dioxide. The but there's a methane is, problem, isn't there, as well? Um, isn't, isn't there a methane yeah. problem that throws it out? Yeah. Well, the methane problem, it, this is um, not so much when you burn it, of course, but it can be released, for instance, uh, old pipelines, uh, municipal natural gas pipelines. They've actually flown above Boston, I think it was, and tracked the methane leakage from the pipelines, especially old ones. And that can be a problem. Another carbon dioxide problem is natural gas fields do contain varying amounts of carbon dioxide. Generally, it's very small, but the Natura gas field in Indonesia contains 30% carbon dioxide which is released into the atmosphere. What also happens with carbon dioxide, for instance, in, um, carbon dioxide is the small quantity released in general from gas or oil fields, is often collected and pumped, say, the, from the Canadian fields, it's pumped down to uh, American fields for secondary gas or oil recovery. So in other words, and you know, they make a big noise out of this, this is, uh, this is sequestering carbon dioxide. It is, of course, but it's also used to produce yet more fossil fuels. <laughs> so there's a bit of irony about that. So yes, methane is a, uh, if it leaks, it's a pretty reactive um, greenhouse gas, much more so than um, carbon dioxide, depending on what time frame you put it in, whether 20 or 100 years and so on. 
I'll get you to comment also, Julia was talking about the effect on the waters of Western Port by this. Julia, if you could just briefly, for Paddy, explain that water situation and the danger it can pose. It's Julia here from Save Western Port. So we're, we're fighting AGL's proposal down here where they, uh, I'm sure you've heard about it, but they are wanting to regasify tanker loads of LNG using uh, Waters Western Port as a source of uh, heat to thaw the um, frozen gas. So we're concerned about the use of that water and the chlorination and the temperature change to that. But then they've got the possibility of a closed loop system where they would be burning gas as well. So one would not use the water, but it would actually have higher emissions. So I guess what the proponent AGL is, is, um, is saying is that they shouldn't be responsible or have to take account for what they call the scope three or downstream the greenhouse gases that would amass from their production of the fuel. There's a lot of things to consider. But, yeah, I, I think we can all agree that uh, we've got to look at some kind of um, option. Paddy, was that fugitive emissions, what you were talking about before? Is that what that's called when methane leaks? Yeah, sometimes it is intentionally released as well, for instance, from oil fields and so on. It's flared. If it's flared, of course, it produces carbon dioxide which is uh, less of a greenhouse gas than um, methane, but it's still a problem. They are trying to cut down on flaring, but it's still going on. Yeah. So perhaps yeah. I could comment on, on the general natural gas use in Australia. It's actually, as you know, we export a lot of natural gas. Um, don't worry what, what an exajoule is, but it's a lot of joules. It's in fact uh, 10 to the 18 joules. In Australia, we actually use about 1.5, or in 2018, we used 1.5 EJ. In 2019, 1.93. That was a 30% rise just over one year. That's how much we consume. We actually produce in 2019 5.52 each compared with 1.93 use. So you can see we export uh, most of it. Yeah. And as was commented, one of the problems uh, with bringing in uh, liquefied natural gas is that it's a very cold temperature and you've got to bring it up to over uh, 20 degrees ambient temperature. Now, you could in fact use this to produce power. Interesting enough, I think in Japan they might do this. In other words, if you have two sinks with, with the different temperatures, yeah. two energy sinks, you can in fact use that to produce power, but I don't think they're planning to do this. Another thing we should mention is the, um, the Prelude, the one in of Exmouth in Western Australia. This cost a uh, modest somewhere between um, 13 and 17 billion Australian dollars to build. It's presently operated for about a year and it's presently shut down uh, because it's getting problems. It's a huge thing. It's four, It's about half a kilometre long. This is a floating ship, as it were, half a kilometre long. Presumably the one at Western Port will be a lot smaller. But um, it's interesting to note that they are having problems with it. They said that there was a fire, but some think that it won't even start again. So we need to uh, factor that in as well. Yeah, I read, I read an article about the prelude in the, in the West Australian, and, and that report was just damning, the, the safety report. that That's why they closed it down. Is that right? Well, there was a fire, I think they said. There hasn't been much come out. Uh, shell has been very tight-lipped about what happened, yeah. right? It's not released much. But it's not actually that, it's not that much bigger than what they have here. Like, the one that they are proposing to have here would be 300 metres long. Well, that's, uh, that's near half a kilometre. That's over a third or nearly a third. Yeah, it's pretty big, yeah. Certainly, yeah. 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 What's the cost likely to be, you know? The cost of, sorry, of... Of the ship, yeah. Oh, okay. Well, I was going to say AGL 
claim it's about 250 million cost to establish it. So um, that's their estimation. But they would just be leasing the FSIU. Uh, They're just leasing the, the thing. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I think, you know, people are wondering how they, they're going to make the numbers work for them because, you know, it's interesting you said that gas um, demand in Australia rose from 19, sorry, 18 to 19. Yeah, 30%. But that, that's yeah. going to drop this year and I, I don't think there's going to be the sort of, I mean, there's there's a bit of a, a, um, a big debate about that, how we're going to come out of COVID, how we're going to, what our energy future is going to be, but I think this is a good time to talk about it but the, the demand here is certainly going to be nothing like last year. And even, even you know, globally, there's a lot of divestment away from gas and fossil fuels generally. So every week it seems like you hear another company, another insurance company, another bank, another industry that's getting out of, of them. So I think that's we're only going to see that accelerate. So I don't think they're going to see the same kind of demand come back. I really don't. Yeah, agreed. I, look, I think I think we need to cut down our energy use, and and of course, especially on the uh, fossil fuels. Yeah, look, it's hard to say what the post-COVID situation will be. In fact, this is a sort of a watershed year. In other words, we have up to 2019, we have after 2020, and um, certainly for things like air travel. Well, even the Air Travel Association is saying it's going to be 2024 before it returns to normal. All the officials thinking in terms of return to normal, right? In other words, if business as usual will resume, whether we face a, a climate change catastrophe or not. So I think we will, you're right, I think we will see uh, moves to reduce our energy. And um, if that's the case, then I think this could be another white elephant. Yeah, I really, I think you're right. I mean, it's interesting because I, I was saying before, AGL have done some good things with uh, renewables. They've got some wind farms up and running and, you know, they've had to get out of their coal-fired assets. But resorting to gas seems like a real backwards step. And, you know, talking about the rationale for this project with the AGL representatives, because they're saying that there's going to be a gas shortage, you know, the sky is falling, we're going to run out of gas any minute unless they can do this project and go ahead and we need to get out of the way and let them do it. So we want to know what they are doing. If there is a gas shortage, what are they doing to help their customers transition away from gas? Because I think, you know, that maybe our industry is going to need gas for the foreseeable future, but I don't think that's the same with households. I think households can run, every appliance that you need in the home can be run on renewable electricity. There's electrically operated alternatives. So... I think if people are encouraged to insulate their homes properly and to heat their homes and use electrical renewable resource power, then that would free up a lot of gas for industry and surely Australia has got enough to supply our own industry. The idea of, of importing gas at the same year that Australia became the biggest producer of the commodity just seems, just seems so bizarre. And, and, you know, um, regasifying and shipping it around the world and freezing it and bringing it back, it increases the fossil fuel load of the end product by 20 to 30%, which, which is that not sustainable, I don't think. No, look, I, I think that what we have to do is use less energy. That's the main thing. Yeah. If you, if you think about this. If you use less energy, it'll be in fossil fuels you will use less. Therefore, you will have spare capacity in fossil fuels. That means, of course, that you won't be producing renewables as fast. 
What is happening worldwide at present is that there is an increase in renewable energy, yes, but there's also an increase in fossil fuel energy. Renewable energy is not replacing fossil fuels. What we have to do first is use less fossil fuels and that will inevitably lead to surplus infrastructure. And the surplus fossil fuel infrastructure will mean we won't want to be pushing renewables as much because there won't be any need for new uh, energy infrastructure. So yes, we do have to shift to renewables, but first thing we have to do is cut down energy use and that means cutting down fossil fuel use. So what are the biggest ways that you think we can cut down energy use, Cody? Well, the biggest energy users are, uh, well, the main ones, of course, are industry, buildings and transport. Now, in um, transport, not much. There, there are about 25 million natural gas vehicles in the world. They're very popular in South America and the Middle East, Pakistan and so on. But as you know, a number of countries and cities have plans to ban internal combustion engine vehicles. Yeah. And that means, that, well, obviously oil-based vehicles, but also natural gas vehicles, natural fuel vehicles, biodiesel and bioethanol vehicles will all go, right? So there's no future there. Mm. And as you know, uh, electric vehicles are selling pretty well now. So gas is used in buildings, industry, mainly buildings and industry and also power production. So when you say buildings, do you mean in construction or in um, maintaining and operating buildings? Yeah, heating them. And uh, yep. uh, in other words, water heating and cooling, well, mainly heating, um, space heating uses natural gas. But a lot can be done that is not being done currently with better design for buildings, don't you think? Because there's been, uh, you know, back in the 70s and 80s, there was cheap energy and there was no need to prioritise good building design. But that's become... That's well, become it's smartly, yeah, look, there's a lot of talk about smart buildings these days and energy safety. What you want is smart occupants, right? Mm. In other words, you want people to think about it. If you have a look at the price of fuels today, or how much of the... Most households spend about 5% of, of their income on fuel. If you go back a few hundred years, like in England, they spend about 70% on fuel. Yep. Energy is very cheap these days, and unless it increases in price, the people are motivated to use less. They're not going to um, save. You think people are spending 5% on energy in their homes? I, yeah. I think it would be more than that. It, it varies, of course, with household income. Yep. Those who are lower-income households tend to spend more, up to, I think, 9 or 10%. This is Australian figures, but they're similar. I've had a look at American, Japanese, English figures, and they're somewhat similar. So until the public feel that climate change is a real concern, they're not going to do anything much. And, of course, companies, especially energy companies, badly want to continue business as usual. Sure, they might window dress like BP says that it now means beyond petroleum and so on. It doesn't. Yep. That's where their money comes from. It's really the same with AGL they, that, you know, they are saying that they, they're doing good things in renewables and all of that. And yes, they are, but... But really, they could be doing so much more. Their policies of renewable and sustainability policies are a lot more ambitious than what they're actually doing on the ground. And that's really showing up in the, the way they're pushing ahead with this proposal down here, where they really want to get this new source of gas. Now, whether that's for households, as they say, or it's for gas-fired power stations, I think the latter is probably the case. They've got different gas-fired power stations in uh, South Australia and in New South Wales that they want to get up and running. They want energy security for those. But I really, I think that they've been dishonest with the, with the people of Victoria. They've been dishonest with the government, telling the government that there's going to be a, an energy shortage when really what they are talking about is that they have an energy shortage. Victoria doesn't have an energy shortage. We don't have a gas shortage. It's about how much we've sold 
on these long-term lucrative overseas contracts. I think that the, the idea that we can just keep looking for and finding new sources of gas and peddling and burning ever more is just not sustainable. It's crazy and these energy companies really need to be reined in. They have a responsibility to all of us because, well, they're our energy provider, but also because they have profited so greatly in the last decade from their commercial activities. And I think that there's there's a really big question of change happening now and they that they should be really called on the regulation and the I think that the community expects them to do that as well. Yeah. Can I cut it here? Because I think we're just about out of time, but I, and it's a bad time to raise it. But Patty, I, I tend to think the community generally is concerned about climate change, but the agenda is still controlled by pro-fossil governments and business, and that's the major problem. Yeah, um, well, neither major party seems to be interested in uh, doing anything about it, which, yeah, look, we just hope that whether, in fact, uh, the coronavirus, the current pandemic, will prime people for change. Uh, one American official, I forget who it was, said, never let a good crisis go to waste, right? In, in times of crisis, people do tend to question, think, for instance, in America, 70% of people think America's on the wrong path at present due to the crisis they've had with Black Lives Matter and with um, the coronavirus. So people perhaps are questioning and and uh, 2020 could be a dividing year between the old and the new. We certainly hope so. Yeah, okay, well, let's, we're going to have to finish there, unfortunately. But Paddy Moriarty from Monash, thanks a lot. Julia Stockard from Save Western Port again, thanks for your time. And we'll follow up because it's going to be ongoing. I was just going to ask one very last question. Yep, right. <laughs> because this show is going to air on the 26th and the community still has the potential to, to write in about the environmental effects statement, this, this proposal. We do have time today if listeners wanted to make an entry. Is this the last day, Julia? Midnight tonight on the 26th. Um, midnight is when submissions close. So if you go to savewesternport.org, there is a tool, a submission writing tool that can help you write a submission very easily. You can do that in a few minutes. We've, we've already smashed the record for the most submissions ever made in Victoria for an EES process. So we see there's a great deal of community interest in this project. And we would really encourage everybody to go online, savewesternport.org, and make a submission before midnight tonight. Thank you so much. Excellent. Thank you so much, Julia. And yes, if any listeners have any submissions they want to make, go straight to savewesternport.org and write in. Okay, that's it. Thanks, look, Julia and Patty, thanks so much for your time today and uh, we'll certainly follow up on this one anyway. Karina, look, thank you too for doing a great job with technical difficulties today, but you've done a <laughs> wonderful job. And next week it's transport and we'll be talking to John McPherson about transport issues. But um, thanks to both our guests and um, that's it for City Limits. All right, see you next week. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.